0: Welcome to the Voice of the Narrated Puritan Podcast. In a couple of episodes I wanted to do an observation of some of the things going on in what is called the Asbury Revival in Kentucky in our day. This week and the last week and compare it to what is written and well documented in historic revivals of the past. First of all, a short bibliography is some of the things that I have read on the subject of revival since 1984. The first books on revival that I read were the three that were put together and they are now in paperback form from Jonathan Edwards called A Narrative of Many Surprising Conversions and that took place in Northampton about 1733. Also, distinguishing marks of a work of the Spirit of God is in that, as well as thoughts on the present revival of religion. In December of 1985, I started my audiobook narration ministry as, as a cassette ministry to the blind patrons of Chapel Library, then in Venice, Florida, because they had written in, express many of the things that were good for reading, were certainly not going to be available in Braille. So, at that time, the first book that I started to narrate on revival was a massive volume, John Gilley's historical accounts and collections of revivals with an introduction by Horatius Bonar. In those days, I filled up 12 cassettes, which would have been 18 hours of narrating from that book. When I moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan in December of 1988, I visited my brother who was then living in Indianapolis, Indiana, and checked through the bookstores there and found a second edition of William Sprague's Lectures on Revival. The Banner of Truth magazine had published a first edition, and that was the actual copy that was owned by Charles Simeon, and they took that and published it. The second edition had more letters in the appendix and was published in the year 1833. In the year 1993, I narrated for the first time a treatise on the religious affections by Jonathan Edwards, a book that was written because there was a lot of animosity towards some of the anomalies in the Great Awakening, some of the aberrations, I may say. It wasn't long after that I discovered the Revival series that was published by Richard Owen Roberts, which included things like the Boston Revival of uh, 1842 by Martin Moore, Authentic Records of Revival Now in Progress, in the United Kingdom, William Reed, 1860, the revival that took place in Scotland when Whitfield came there, Lectures on Revival of Religion by Ministers of Scotland, which was published in the year 1840, which uh, I'm finally getting around to narrating some of that. In fact, for our podcast for the seminary yesterday, I played my narration of William Hetherington's preface to that work to describe what are the accepted definitions of real revival. Another book that was in that series is called Revivals at the End of the Ninth, 18th and beginning of the 19th century, which was a compilation by Bennett Tyler of articles and testimonies that was in a magazine called the Connecticut Evangelical Magazine. That magazine was started in the year 1800 in June because there were so many revivals that were going on uh, between the first and the second great awakening starting in about 1792 and going through about 1830 that they started a magazine to... includes some of the letters that they were receiving from pastors. Another book that was in the six-volume series was called Accounts of Religious Revivals in Many Parts of the United States from 1815 to 1818, collected from numerous publications and letters from persons of piety from Joshua Bradley, Master of Arts Albany, New York, published in the year 1819. In 2018, for the first time, I taught a series of four lessons on revival, which was just a real basic interview. The fact of the matter is, the study of the history of revival is not something that we have had a lot in our Reformed Baptist circles. We've really began to be exposed to it all the way back in 1973 when they had uh, invited Ian Murray to the conference that was going on in Harvey Cedars, and he did five. Messages on revival, which a number of us listen to and it also made some of us that had listened to them many times students of revival because there were so many sources in there that were helpful to us, and from that I learned that I needed to uh, learn about Edward Dore Griffin and gather up some of the sources that he mentions who were the historians during the revivals in America, and that would be William Henry Foote, sketches of North Carolina and sketches of Virginia, and Benjamin Trumbull on History of Connecticut, which uh, details a lot of what happened during the Great Awakening, and the ministry of Samuel Davies. So after getting revival and revivalism and since i live in kentucky now i didn't at the time i became interested in the kentucky revival of eighteen hundred that took place in logan county here in kentucky and the cane ridge revival that was led by barton w stone and others up in paris kentucky which i don't think was as pure and as guarded as down in logan county that uh leader was William McGrady who had studied at the second uh log college they called it log college south and uh it was a little bit more contained There were many helpful books on that. I would say one of them that I have narrated a lot of was by William Spear called The Great Revival of 1800. During that time, I also learned about Joseph Tracy's work that came out about the 100-year anniversary of The Great Awakening called The Great Awakening. He was a congregationalist, and I would check out the footnotes because I was interested in some of the things that he was quoting, and I discovered a book that was so intriguing to me, the title of it, that I probably searched for 30 years before I could get a copy of it and it was called An Essay Upon the Influence of the Imagination on the Nervous System, Contributing to a False Open Religion, by the Reverend Grant Powers, and over in Flag 1828. And He was commissioned to write this to examine some of the anomalies, some of the strange things that they couldn't account for that happened in the Kentucky Revival. In our day, something like that could be written, uh, not on contributing to a false hope on religion, but contributing to a false hope of revival. I also became interested in religious experience and a subject that's talked about during revivals called the subject of sympathy, which I dealt a little with in the last podcast on this revival to set up a background I so many called revivals are mixed with human emotion that is not produced by the Holy Spirit. Going back to 1989, I had discovered that Charles Hodge and his constitutional history of the Presbyterian Church spent 100 pages in that constitutional history dealing with a subject called the Great Revival, and there was a lot that I learned in there, though I would say that Hodge and the subsequent generations of Princeton were not the students of revival. as those who had founded Princeton Theological Seminary, who were pastors themselves and lived during the Great Awakening, and no three would be Archibald Alexander, the first professor, Ashbel Green, a president of the seminary, and Samuel Miller, who taught ecclesiastical history and so on. I would say, though, as much as I have studied revival and even taught on revival, the one book that I am amazed at the research that is contained in it is Ian Murray's Revival and Revivalism, and no matter what I've taught on revivals, I've found that it is helpful for me to find other sources that it mentions in that book. So, this is just A basic overview and just some of the books that I can remember that I have studied on this subject and anything that I say here about what I have studied, most of it is narrated and you could find it on the site on Sermon Audio called A Narrated Puritan. With that background, I do want to say as I heard that there was a revival going on in Athbury College in Kentucky, a Methodist University, I obviously went in a little bit skeptical because so much of what is called revival in our day. There are some missing elements in it, and I wanted to see if any of those things were mentioned in the testimonies of the revival going on here in Kentucky. And I knew going in the one thing that had me concerned. First of all, being a Methodist university, they don't have a proper view of the doctrine of regeneration or the new birth. And modern evangelicalism has made regeneration and justification synonymous terms. Regeneration has to do with the corrupt heart that we were born with because of the imputation of Adam's sin to his posterity. Justification has do with the removing of our guilt by a substitutionary curse bearing atonement, which was done by Jesus Christ and by faith in him that righteousness is imputed to us, and we are accepted before God as a judge. So with that foundation, if you have made it thus far, you wanted a little bit more than entertainment, and you probably are a little bit more serious about an analyzation of what's going on here in Kentucky. So, I put together some of the quotes from many, many testimonies of this so-called revival that is going on, and I'll quote some of them and not so much comment on them, but compare them to the historic revivals of a bygone day. The one revival that I haven't mentioned is the prayer meeting revival of 1857, which was started by Jeremiah Calvin Lanfear in a Dutch church in south part of Manhattan. I used to live down there, so I am familiar with the area. I was stationed at uh, Governor's Island in the United States Coast Guard in 1984 and 1985. And the reason why that history is important is because, like this revival in Asbury, this was more of a layman's revival, starting out with prayer meetings, and it spread over into the United Kingdom. And if you document it, very many other places besides. And so a number of books came out of that period. For example, when it came to Wells, the history of that was put together by Thomas Phillips. Also spread to Ireland, and the book that documents that is called The Year of Grace, A History of the Ulster Revival of 1859, and that author is William Gibson. Included in that also is authentic records of revival now in progress in the United Kingdom, and that's William Reed. A lot of that deals with the revival that took place in Ireland as well in the year eighteen fifty nine So here are some of the quotes that I gathered up from the revival that is going on at Asbury College here in Kentucky. The ongoing meetings in the Chapel, which have none of the flashing lights, fog machines or other trappings that accompany many modern worship services. Well, I guess that's a good thing. I think a lot of people sense that America and American Christianity has lost its way, he said, and they seem to me that they are looking to get back to Jesus in a profound experiential way. Another quote, They often bypass leaders and start from the grassroots. That makes them harder to predict or control it can also be a way of separating spiritual experience from the baggage of organized religion. So organized religion is baggage, according to this. Next, there was a sense of the presence of God, he said, adding that it went beyond simply an emotional experience. Erickson said he's been a bit dismayed at some of the social media criticism of the revival, saying it will take time to see if the gatherings lead to real change in people's lives, which is always something that we should Look for. There is nothing more exciting than being in a room full of people all seeking the presence of God. It's praise and worship. Honestly, nobody is snake handling, it's just praise and worship. This going around twenty four seven. Another it's really been student led, but now the world's coming in to be like I want to experience this. We've been here in Hughes Auditorium for over a hundred hours praying, crying, worshipping, and uniting because of love of the people, they are just hungry and want to have an experience. Next, when the microphone is open for testimonies, he wrote, There are long lines of grateful people, worshippers who stayed there all night. It was apparent that these young people were not caught up in revival, but in the revival lure. God, had come. Unexpectedly, Blank wrote on his Facebook page, No one person was in charge that's not a good sign. No one dared to get in the way of what God was doing, what God has done in the last 72 hours. So at that point we would ask, well, how do you examine if it was God, if nobody is in charge? We're just getting out of the way of what God is doing. So with that background, I want to read some accounts of revivals from a bygone day. You can see what the difference is and if the emphasis is on having an experience or a real sound conversion. Remember in the background of this, in the narrative of surprising conversions, this took place in Jonathan Edwards Church in Northampton. Previously pastored by Solomon Stoddard and Solomon Stoddard and Jonathan Edwards together until Stoddard passed off the scene and then Jonathan Edwards alone. So you would suppose if there was any church where the majority of the people were converted, it would be in a church like that. But as I read this, you discover that even in this church, the thing that is Marked it, and this different about the Asbury revival, is many who had a profession turned out to be hypocrites, or otherwise why would they have been awakened and seeking salvation if they already were converted? I'm going to quote Jonathan Edwards' And it's helpful because there's a lot more detail from here. And there is a person in charge, a person with a great amount of Christian experience. And I would say that the analysis here is superb. But I'm reading this so that you can compare this to what I just read of some of the testimonies that are given about the Asbury Revival. Quote, I therefore proceed to give an account of the manner of persons being wrought upon And here there is a vast variety, perhaps as manifold as the subjects of the operation, but yet in many things there is a great analogy in all. Persons are first awakened with a sense of their miserable condition by nature, the danger they are in of perishing eternally, and that it is of great importance to them that they speedily escape and get into a better state. Those who were before secure and senseless are made sensible how much they were in the way to ruin in their former courses some are more suddenly seized with convictions it may be by the news of others conversion or something they hear in public or in private conference or consciences are smitten as if their hearts were pierced through with a dart Others are awakened more gradually, they begin at first to be something more thoughtful and considerate, so as to come to a conclusion in their minds that it is their best and wisest way to delay no longer, but to improve the present opportunity. They have accordingly set themselves seriously to meditate on those things that have the most awakening tendency, on purpose, to obtain convictions, and so their awakenings have increased till a sense of their misery by God's Holy Spirit setting in therewith has had fast hold of them. Others who before had been somewhat religious and concerned for their salvation have been awakened in a new manner and made sensible well, that their slack and dull way of seeking was never likely to attain that purpose. As I mentioned in the last podcast, the thing that also is missing in the Asbury Revival accounts is that uh, when the Holy Spirit of God in a manifest presence comes upon an assembly, those who are out of Christ, they aren't taken up with God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life, but there is a dread, there is a fear, there is a real awakening. They are afraid, and they are seeking to get out of that state by any way possible and have an interest in Jesus Christ for salvation. And Jonathan Edwards says, there is a great variety as to the degree of fear, and trouble that persons are exercised with before they attain any comfortable evidences of pardon and acceptance with God. Some are from the beginning carried on with abundantly more encouragement and hope than others. Some have had ten times less trouble of mind than others, in whom yet the issue seems to be the same. Some have had such a sense of the displeasure of God and the great danger they were in of damnation that they could not sleep at nights and many have said that when they have laid down the thoughts of sleeping in such a condition have been frightful to them they have scarcely been free from terror while asleep on their spirits it has been very common that the deep and fixed concern on persons mind has had a painful influence on their bodies and given disturbance to animal nature the awful apprehension persons have had of their misery have for the most part been increasing the nearer they approach to deliverance. Though they often pass through many changes and alterations in the frame and circumstances of their minds, Sometimes they think themselves wholly senseless and fear that the Spirit of God has left them and that they are given up to judicial hardness, yet they appear very deeply exercised about that fear entering great earnest to obtain convictions again, In quote. Now, that kind of experience certainly isn't in anything that I mentioned as I gave these accounts in the Asbury Revival. If somebody has some intelligence to change my mind on this, I'm willing to read anything that comes my way is I'm very interested that there really is true revival coming to this country. We desperately need it, but we need the real thing. Not so much lifting up the arms in the air, but pounding upon the breast and crying out, God be merciful to us and our nation. It will be asked, and what is that which is drawing these people together if it isn't the Holy Spirit? Well, I'm not saying the Holy Spirit is not in it altogether, but I'm saying the effects of what the Holy Spirit would produce is a lot different to what I'm reading in these testimonies. But I mentioned in the last podcast uh, an effect of something that is called sympathy. I have now opened before me a book called Thoughts on Religious Experience, published in the year 1841 by Archibald Alexander, and he explains sympathy and what it is and how it would affect a revival of religion. Quote, The causes already considered which modify religious experience relate to Christians as individuals. But man is constitutionally a social being, and religion is a social thing, so that we cannot have a complete view of the subject without considering them as they stand connected with others and especially as they are influenced by one another. There is a mysterious bond called sympathy by which not only human beings but some species of animals are connected. It is much easier on the subject to state the facts and to account for them. A man cannot go into any company without being sensible of some change in his feelings. Whatever passion agitates those around him, he involuntarily participates in the emotion. And a mere external expression of any feeling often produces the same expression in himself, whether it be yawning, smiling, crying, or coughing. And this must be effected by an assimilation of the mind of the beholder to the state of mind which produces the external act. The wilder and stronger the passions which agitate others, the more we are affected by them. This operation of mutual sympathetic excitement, when many persons are brought together under some agitating influence, produces a stream of emotion which cannot easily be resisted, and far above what any one of the crowd would have felt if the same cause had operated on him alone. So what he is saying is when a number of people get together in a crowd, the effect of sympathy that he is defining here is going to be more prevalent than if he is alone. To quote, Alexander some more if there be anything in animal magnetism which has of late made so much noise besides sheer imposture it must be grafted on this principle for the extent to which human beings may influence each other by contact or proximity in certain excitable states of the nervous system has never been accurately ascertained it will not be thought strange that that sympathy should have a powerful influence in increasing and modifying the feelings which are experienced in revival meetings nor is it desirable that it should be otherwise this principle no doubt is liable to abuse and when unduly excited may be attended with disagreeable and injurious effects. But without it, how dull and uninterested would social worship be? When a whole assembly, in listening to the same evangelical discourse, or praising God in the same divine song, or sitting together around the same sacramental table, are deeply affected, they form, as it were, one body, and the whole mass is melted down and amalgamated into one grand emotion. They seem to have but one heart and one soul and as harmoniously as her voices mingle in the sacred song of praise to the Redeemer, their feelings amalgamate in one ascending volume toward heaven. The preacher who is privileged to address such an assembly seems to have before him one great body having many eyes but one soul. But is it not to be expected at such a time many will be affected by mere sympathy? And will not such as are thus affected be in great danger being deceived by taking these tender emotions of sympathy to be the exercises of true repentance, especially as they fall in with these convictions of conscience which all who hear the gospel experience? Is it then judicious by impassioned discourses addressed to the sympathies of our nature to raise this class of feeling to a flame, or to devise measures by which the passions of the young and ignorant may be excited to excess? That measures may be put into operation which have a mighty influence on a whole assembly is readily admitted, but are excitements thus produce really useful. They may bring young people who are diffident to a decision, and, as it were, constrain them to raise themselves on the Lord's side. But the question which sticks with me is, does this really benefit to persons? In my judgment, not at all, but to contrary. If they have the seat of grace, so it may come forth slowly, yet this principle will find its way to the light and air, and the very slowness of its coming forward may give it opportunity to strike its roots deep in the earth. If I were to place myself on what is called an anxious seat, in our day we call it an altar call or should kneel down before a whole congregation to be prayed for i know that i should be strangely agitated but i do not believe that it would be of any permanent utility but if it should produce some good effect am i at liberty to resort to anything in the worship of god which i think will be useful if such things are lawful and useful why not add other circumstances to increase the effect End quote. so in my studies of revival i was interested in some of the things that were going on in First Great Awakening that weren't really carefully guarded against that Asahel Nettleton, who was greatly used in the Second Great Awakening, though too many have forgot his name, studied greatly the works that were published by Jonathan Edwards and learned a lot from the effect of sympathy during revival. So if somebody cried out in agony and fear in the congregation that would produce a ripple effect that would go through the audience and cause others to have a great agitation that could be mistaken from as the Holy Spirit working upon the conscience when in fact it was the effect of mere sympathy. So Asahel Nettleton would take the person that would cry out in the congregation and he had it predetermined and set up that that person would be taken to a separate adjoining building, which would be called an inquiry meeting room where they would talk to the person who was under awakening, try to ascertain the level of their feelings, their convictions, and so on, and give them directions to come to Christ. So sympathy was more regarded against under the ministry of Asahel Nettleton. This is why Asahel Nettleton was so concerned when Charles Phineas, an evangelist, came along later and actually worked upon the animal passions, if I may call them that, the things that are in common with man and animals, and tried to work upon those instead of having the Holy Spirit bringing them with saving light to the Lord Jesus Christ. And conversions became the result of mere suasion rather than the Holy Spirit enlightening the eyes and slaying the enmity of the heart the whole view of what a conversion is has changed significantly. And so many people, the pressure is put upon the feelings rather than trusting in the Holy Spirit to enlighten the eye of the understanding, to know what it says in First Corinthians 2.14, that the natural mind cannot understand, and that is what the new birth is and what are the fruits of it. It's spiritual enlightenment. It's not suasion or persuasion. Yesterday in the podcast, I mentioned the effect of sympathy that is written in Robert Louis Dabney's Discussions, Volume 3, called Spurious Religious Excitements. And he goes on to say, these plain facts and principles condemn nearly every feature of the modern New Measure revival. By New Measure, he's referring to the tactics that were employed by Charles Finney. The preaching and other religious instructions are shaped with a main view to excite the carnal emotions and the instinctive sympathies, while no due care is taken to present saving didactic truths to the understanding. Thus, temporarily stimulated, it soon as some persons, professed Christians, are awakened mourners are infected with any lively passion. Let it be however carnal and fleeting. A spectacular display is made of it. Um, I just want to say here as a footnote, what he's saying then is, if we were to apply it to what's going on in the Asbury revival, it is probably not good to take recent converts and have them standing in a line in front of a microphone and tell the crowd of their experience of what they feel that they have been the subjects of in this so-called revival because then you are appealing to the sympathetic nature that is within us and not to the spiritual man. But Dabney says a spectacular display is made of the so-called conversion with confident laudations of it as unquestionably precious and saving with the design of exciting the remainder of the crowd with a sympathetic contagion. Every unjunct of fiery declamation, animated singing, groans, tears, exclamations, noisy prayers is added so as to shake the nerves and add a tumult of a historical animal excitement to the sympathetic wave. Every youth or impressible girl who is seen to tremble or grope, hell or shed tears is assured that he or she is under the workings of the Holy Spirit and is driven by threats of vexing that awful and essential agent of salvation to join the spectacular show and add himself to the excitement pantomime. Meanwhile, most probably their minds are blank of every intelligent or conscientious view of scriptural truth. They had been tittering or whispering a little while before during the pretended didactic part of the exercises. They could give no intelligent account now of their own sudden excitement. And, in fact, it is no more akin to any spiritual, rational, or sanctifying cause than the quiver of the nostrils of a horse at the sound of the bugle and the foxhounds. But they join the mourners and the manipulation proceeds. Of course, a sympathetic wave, called religious... Reaches him more and more, as I have shown, it is the very nature of sympathy to assume the character of the emotion with which we sympathize this thus purely natural and instinctive sensibility takes on the form of religious feelings because it is sympathy with religious feeling in other the subject calls it by religious names, awakening, conviction, repentance, while in reality it is only related to them as a man's shadow is to the living man. Meantime, the preachers talk to them as though the feelings were certainly genuine and spiritual. With this sympathetic current, there may mingle a number of deep, original feelings about the soul to which we have seen the dead carnal heart is fully competent by itself. These are fear, remorse, shame, desire of applause, craving for future, selfish, welfare, spiritual pride. Here we have the elements of every spurious grace. The sorrow of the world that works death is mistaken for saving repentance. By a natural law of the feelings, relaxation must follow high tension. The calm must succeed the storm. The quiet is confounded with peace and believing. Selfish prospect of security produces great elation. It is is supposed to be spiritual joy. When the soul is removed from the stimuli of the revival appliances, it of course sinks into the most painful vacuity on which supervene restlessness and doubt. So most naturally it craves to renew the illusions and has for a time a certain longing for and pleasure in the scenes, the measures and the agents of its pleasing intoxication. These are mistaken for love for God's house, worship, and people. Then the befooled soul goes on until it is betrayed into an erroneous profession of religion and a dead church membership. Is now in a position in which the great enemy of souls would most desire to have him, and where his salvation is more difficult and improbable than anywhere else. And I am going to leave it at that point and wait to see what kind of a reaction I am going to get to these two podcasts, because without doubt, uh, many of the examinations and analysis of what's going on at Asbury isn't going to be anything like this, and there are going to be people that are going to be drawn to this just because this is such a subject in our news and social media. And a lot of people are not going to like what they are hearing here, but To somebody who all along for close to 40 years now has studied these subjects and has a confession for the standard for what he believes and believes in the regulative principle of public worship, this isn't a surprise to me at all. And a sad thing about this is these basic things aren't even understood by many who are in possibly our own church or church movement or whatever you want to call it, denomination. They are so ignorant of these things that they actually are joyful about what's going on in Kentucky. And they say, well, a number of students are crying out to God in prayer, and therefore we need to rejoice. But for God to withhold his hand, of judgment upon this nation. We're going to need a lot more than a superficial gathering of excitable teenagers to come to that contrition that is spoken of in Nehemiah 9, Daniel chapter 9 in Ezra chapter 9. If you're interested in what those things would look at, I narrated a couple of sermons by John Owen from his collected sermons in volume 9 called The Goodness and Severity of God in Judging Sinful Churches and Nations. So I must admit that I'm very melancholy. I really want revival, and what we're seeing is not the revival that I really am longing and looking for. And I'm going to be looked at as censorious. I am in between two camps here. I have those even of my own church not local church, but distant church who have the same convictions of me, who don't believe in any revival at all, and don't really believe that the awakening was so great. And on the other side, I have those that want to embrace anything that is called revival and have hopes in it. And what's so sad about it is these people are taught well and should know better. So sometimes you hope against hope and put out a podcast like this and say maybe there's two or three who will listen and who will understand. And all I can say is I am not setting myself up as a standard here. I am trying to bring a little bit of light from some of the writings of the past by people who are really students of real revival. Jonathan Edwards, William Sprague, Heyman Humphrey, Edward Dorr Griffin, James Robb of Killsythe Scotland, William McCulloch of Scotland, and on and on. Some of these people who were very, very cautious about what true revival was. The men who were the founders and first presidents of the Log College, for example, Aaron Burr Sr., Jonathan Dickinson, Samuel Davies, Jonathan Edwards again, Samuel Finley, and a number of other people. So, the least that you could say is that I have studied this somewhat, and I'm at least not trying to be superficial about it, and the last thing I want to be is censorious. I just want to bring some light to this that you probably are not going to hear from any other sources. Thank you for tuning in to the Narrated Puritan Podcast.